Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And once again, I have an astounding guest lined up for today's show. Um, I met Jeff on uh, LinkedIn, just like I've met, it seems like almost most of my people in my circle the last few years have been on social media, which has been a good thing, I guess, for social media. Um, Jeffrey Kwame is in Connecticut and July 2nd, we will be rolling the 34 foot fully wrapped Living Undeterred US tour a mental health initiative RV uh, into his town. And Jeff is, uh, has uh, jumped on board. He's a passionate advocate and he does have a record. Jeff, you didn't know this, but you do have a record for my podcast already. You have the most initials behind anybody I've ever had on the show. <laughs> so I'm not gonna, It's window dressing. <laughs> I'm not going to try. I have like one initial. I don't even use it because it's my investment background. Yeah. Um, but why don't you just give us a little intro about who you are, uh, what your expertise is, and based on what I can see in your profile, I am so excited to talk to you today. Okay, sure. Um, my name is Jeff Kwame. I'm, uh, I live in Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, I am the executive director of a credentialing body, the Connecticut Certification Board. And what we do is competency-based credentialing for mental health and SUD professionals, really with a focus of ensuring that people have competence to practice ethically to protect the person served as, as well as their family and community. Um, I have been in the field since 1988. It's uh, in different roles. So it's quite a long time. Um, I'm also, uh, I speak around the country on many issues, medicated assistant, medication assisted treatment uh, for opioid use disorder. I do a lot of ethics work and um, I've been lucky. I get to go around the country and talk about the credibility credibility issues in the substance use disorder field that we really need to address mm. so that we can be more effective and, and uh, you know, help more people. Um, I am somebody who lives with post-traumatic stress disorder and major depressive disorder and for as long as I can remember. Uh, so this is really uh, a personal and professional work to me, uh, being a part of the Living Undeterred Tour. And, and I'm really excited on July 2nd, we'll be uh, with our partners at the University of Bridgeport um, in our largest city. So I'm excited uh, for that to happen. Yeah, we're super excited to have you participate. Um, this whole thing started off, you know, back last in May of 2021 and just kind of as an idea. I have attention deficit. So, you know, uh, and I have a hard time uh, staying still. And so I just felt like I wasn't doing enough, Jeff. And so went out like the next day and bought an RV and thought, I told everyone, I'm going to go drive around the United States with my two boys and we're going to raise a million bucks. And they're like, when are you going to do this? And I said, in 60 days. So that was last May. And then they said, Jeff, if you, if you do this, you're the biggest idiot I know, because if you do this correctly, <laughs> if you, cause there's no way you can do this in 60 days, but if you do this correctly, you can change lives. So I, sh I shelved the idea we pushed it back and we actually shove off by the time this plays, we'll already be on the road. But um, yeah, we're so excited. I mean, I, I just think Johan Harry is a great individual. I like to quote a lot. I read his book, chasing the scream, the war on drugs, the colossal failure in the war on drugs. And he says, and I, I, I was going to ask you this question. Um, the opposite of addiction is connectivity connection. I, I didn't know, maybe we could start there. You know, we talk about addiction a lot, I guess, first of all, don't, don't we all have addictions? I mean, aren't we all addicts in some way, shape or form? And, and aren't there, aren't there good at addictions as well? But then what, what do you think the opposite of addiction is then? 
I certainly think that the the opposite agree that the opposite of addiction is is connection because it is a disease of isolation, a disease of loneliness, and for many, just stopping using whatever the substance may be does not form that connectivity does not form those relationships so it's a learning process for for individuals um and to me the word addiction carries certain connotations mm-hmm. in, in my head and and they're not uh they're they're not um especially positive so i certainly think that we all have um behavioral patterns that we that we follow or routines and things that we may be uh you know, whether we're on, we're on long-term medications, mm-hmm. you know, a, a physical and tissue dependence on, but you know, I'm a little different. I, 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 I don't see a lot of positive in the word addiction, but I, I understand what you're saying. And, and I don't disagree that we kind of all get into behavioral routines and some are positive and some are negative. Yeah. I think, you know, I had a reporter the other day and asked me, um, what question are you trying to solve? What problem are you trying to solve with your tour? And I struggled with this forever because I didn't really know how to answer that. Then I figured out the easiest way to answer a question is don't answer it. And so I came up with this answer. If what we were doing was working, we wouldn't be doing the tour. That was my answer. And I think that's when I saw your status quo thing, it it caught my attention because a lot of people on social media kind of play this echo chamber effect where they like to just not upset the apple cart. They kind of just copy and share and pat each other's back. But you seem to be kind of someone out there that's not looking for a fight, but you've got a little Irish in you, you know, maybe you're looking for a little bit of a scuffle. <laughs> um, but it's like, I admire that. It's like, you know, I, if what we were doing was working, Jeff, you know, you and I be selling cars or something, we'd be doing something different. And so right. the problem is most of the statistics in almost every aspect across the board, unless you just find a very unique, odd statistic where something dropped or got better, most across the board are all, all worse than they were, you know, at least a decade ago. So we have a big task ahead of us. And you, I think your position is very unique. I've never had a guest on that does what you do because you're actually kind of certifying the people that are actually talking to the people. Right. And so how important is that? I mean, that's, that's huge. That's making sure that the, the people that are, you know, in the trenches talking to the uh, patients, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, the individuals, making sure they're, they're credentialed, they're certified, they're up on all their, you know, continuing educations and everything. So maybe talk a little bit about what got you into that and how, how important that is that we have really good people out there helping us. I, I think that, you know, um, you know, there were no, no grand purposes for getting in this when I was younger. Um, it was a job uh, that was available. I was a psychology major as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. So it just working with juveniles. And so it just kind of took on its own life. Um, I had a significant family history of, of mental illness and uh, substance use disorders. So I was surrounded by that. So maybe that was driving that I didn't know it uh, unconsciously. Um, but what I've seen over the years is the things that I was trained to do uh, as a social work student in the 90s and how to interact with individuals has rolls over and changes we we learn new information mm-hmm. and hopefully we adapt to that information and we change what we do to be more effective and that's kind of general uh, overall in in, uh, in the treatment world and i noticed that in the the substance use uh, disorder treatment world there's still a lot of focus on what we used to do sure. 
Um, and we talk about meeting clients where they're at, but often we want them to meet us where we're at, mm-hmm. whether it's um, uh, the policies and procedures of our our facility or follow whatever our recovery recommendations are instead of truly getting with someone saying, Hey, where do you want to be? And let me help you get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're starting to get there, uh, um, but we're not close enough yet. And so I just want to ask the questions to kind of make people think. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do have requirements for continuing education and we have very strict ethical code and, and, procedure to investigate ethical complaints. Uh, And it really is about the person served. It's not about what my needs are as a professional. It's um, helping people out of suffering in a way that they deem is best. And I think that that's important. You know, we all have different ways of of coping and and living our lives. And I think we have to respect that. You know, I've been thrust into this just five years ago. I'm 56 and at age 50, you know, I'm a financial wealth manager doing well, married, three kids, you know, everything's good. And then boom, you know, my son dies. And then a couple of years later, my wife dies. And then I was an alcoholic, I realized since probably ninth grade. So I quit in 17. And I got into this, not, I don't know, industry is a terrible word, I guess, but I got into this side of the fence where I started talking to people, you know, about disease, about choice, about, you know, uh, medically assisted treatment, which we can talk about that, about harm reduction, which I never even heard of harm reduction like three years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I've come into this very green, you know, like, like learning, um, and very open-minded, a little naive, a lot naive, but I'm learning a lot. I'm, I'm getting a very well diversified pool of people through my podcast and being a guest on podcasts. And now the tour, we're going to hear so many different, uh, ways to deal with this. And I guess, the frustration I run into Jeffrey or Jeff is, is a lot of times I meet people that are just so convinced one way or two ways to fix this addiction, substance abuse issue. And they're just, they're dead set that their way is the right way. And then I talk to somebody else and they're saying, Nope, you know, it's, it's uh it's a choice. It's not a disease. I'm, you know, there's lots of people out there doing very well, running their businesses that way. And I'm like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm just so interested in trying to help people and save lives. I don't really care too much about what people believe. I, I just care what works, you know? And so I guess where, where are the new frontiers in, in, in mental health? I mean, you hear so much about psychedelics and brain research technology and all these things. I mean, where are the new ideas? What's fresh out there that we're not seeing right now? Um, I'm not sure that we're not seeing, but as you mentioned, um, the idea of psychedelics for treatment, um, you know, a lot of people are against that without really knowing why they're against right. it. I'm on, I'm on the fence because I don't know enough, right. um, but I do see that it's working. So I certainly can't rule it out. It's on, it's up to me to learn mm-hmm. more. Um, I think that although we've got 70 years of research on how effective medication assisted treatment is using uh, methadone or buprenorphine, we still have people who say that it's trading one drug for another and kind of cheapen that. With the same harm reduction has been around forever. Um, in 1986, Connecticut told us we had to wear seatbelts mm. and people screamed. And that was ultimately harm reduction, which we saw yeah, certainly. has been saving lives. Right. Um, and I, I think more things are going to come on, on the horizon, how we do our jobs. Uh, and it's going to continually be altered and changed. Even some of the great things that this field is doing 
in terms of looking at how people change in, the, in, in stages of change, that they're even being altered because more information is coming in. And, you know, for me, uh, and we're, we're not a couple of young guys, <laughs> right. I'm 55, you're 56. Um, and I'm at the point now where I really just want to ask the questions that people don't want to answer because I think that's where the truths lie for this field. And we all have different truths, but we also have to accept that the folks that we serve have different truths as well. Um, and to me, accepting that is, it's not, it's certainly not a cure because it's so multi-pronged. Mm -hmm. We've got to look at prevention, how important that is. Um, I have a colleague, Dr. Aaron Weiner, who has made the point in Time Magazine saying the only way out of this opioid and overdose crisis long-term is to focus on prevention and get people to stop yeah. uh, stop them from using as, right. as they move forward. And I, I can't, uh, can do nothing but agree right. with that. But I, uh, I think that we have to respect what everybody's role is, let people do their their jobs um, and make sure that people are trained to do their jobs. Do you know Patrick Moore? Uh, the name is ringing a bell. I think I know him from LinkedIn. Yep, yep. Patrick Moore is kind of reminds me of you. He'll jump in the conversations, you know, and, and, and kind of just, you know, poke the bear a little bit, you know, make some comments and things. And uh, Patrick's uh, has, um, he's older than you and I, but he's got research from Kennesaw State University back in the 80s and 90s where he studied, I think, 5,000 students. And his book is called Prehab. And it's identifying the, the four or five stages of the prehabituation. So you're exactly right. And he's, he's got, he's pretty convinced. I mean, Pat Patrick's one of these guys you talk to that um, you have to go back. I read his book three times just so I could try to, you know, make sure I Googled enough words so I can understand what he was saying. He's a very intelligent guy. Um, but he's pretty convinced what you just said, that we need to go back and we need to identify the, the risk, risk patterns, the autonomy and dependency uh, in, in people in the pre-habituation pre stage. And I, I have no clinical background, but I can certainly see my interest uh, when I got thrust into this. The inclination was for me to go after the supply side, Jeffrey, to go after the drugs, the cartels, go after the big pharma, like, you know, dope sick did and all that. And then I thought, you know, I, I had a minor, a minor in psychology, not a major, but a minor in, in psychology in college. And I'm like, maybe, maybe we need to focus on the demand side more. You know, the why behind the reasons people are taking these things in the first place. You know, I've never done drugs. I know my reasons why I, I would have done all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've, I have attention deficit. If I saw a bag of Coke, I would snort the whole bag and be dead. So I knew I didn't have, that's why I don't eat potato chips and all that stuff. Cause I know I don't have, I don't have an <laughs> off button, you know? And, yeah. and so I knew that at a, like when I was 15, but I was an alcoholic. For some reason, I didn't apply that same, and I was a compulsive gambler for twenty for almost twenty years. I had a very tough gambling problem, um, mm -hmm. but I couldn't shut that off. But I could not do drugs. So I guess how can somebody ha not have the ability to shut off one addiction, but then on a couple other, they just can't stop? I mean, or, or they know that they can't do it. You know what? How does the mind work that way? Uh, you know, I, I, you'd have to ask somebody <laughs> a lot smarter than me that, but, uh, you know, again, we all metabolize things different. We all see things different, but what we've done in the substance use disorder field over the years is assuming that anyone who was using drugs of any kind is an addict. Anybody who drinks is an alcoholic instead of realizing and looking and saying, 
Um, I have a colleague, Carl Hart. Oh, yeah. Book called, yep. I read uh, it. I, I saw him on about four yep. or five podcasts. Yep. Drug yep. use for for adults. And, and he's a brilliant man. I've got to speak with him a few times, had dinner with him. And he makes it clear that we've got to start being honest about what's going on around us. We used to tell kids, and our role in prevention was to say, if you use drugs, you're going to go to jail or you're going to die. And these kids are seeing people around them every day drinking and using drugs who have not gone yeah. to jail that are alive and right. living well. Um, so we've got to start talking about the realities of what's happened. I don't necessarily co-sign all of Carl's beliefs, Me too, yep. but I respect the fact that the guy is brilliant and he lives his life uh, the way he chooses to. And he's just making a point. He's not saying that everybody should right. go out and use drugs. He's talking about his experience and, and, and talks a lot about harm reduction. So I think that we need to to stop judging others behavior based on what our perceptions of them are so and let listen to what people say is alcohol a drug absolutely this is where just i i think the hypocrisy and and this is so old is not new but it's like you know you, t you look at parents and they're saying you know don't do drugs don't do drugs don't do drugs and then mom and dad have a medicine cabinet full of all these different types of anxiety pills or, or whatever they're taking Matter of fact, Adderall now, I think, is prescribed more to adults than it is to kids. Um, but and you watch like Super Bowl and you watch, you know, all the TV shows and there's just alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. And it's like, you're right. Kids say, hear all this. Don't, don't, don't. You know, mom and dad say don't drink. And then they're drinking wine every night. And I, I just think if we really want to draw the line in the sand and be the best we can for our kids, then we need to show them, not tell them. And that means you need to stop drinking. If you want your, if you don't want your kids to drink, you shouldn't drink. And again, I'm a hypocrite. When my son was going through all his addictions, my wife and I sat around and we got drunk. And, you know, I, I didn't realize that I, I could have probably been a better dad at that point. And, and I waited, I waited till it was too late even to quit for, to help my wife. Cause she was already, you know, 80% in decline. And when I quit, it was just too late, but the life lesson in that is that all parents need to make those decisions, those conscious decisions that, you know, we want to blame society, we want to blame social media, we want to blame all these, the government or whatever, and then we're at home drinking, getting drunk you know, every night, and our kids see that, you know. It, yeah, and I agree, we have to look at it, you know, it starts at home, and I, I can't speak to the accuracy of what I'm about to yeah. say, I just know that I've heard it, is when you, you know, it's truly an American thing, one is not an you know, one is too much, 10 is not enough. But when you look at countries where alcohol may be used appropriately, and I think of what I was told, uh, Italy, mm -hmm. where they'll have alcohol with meals, there's a respect for alcohol in its place. So you don't see people developing, you know, children developing uh, alcohol use problems as much as we see here. And I think that's, if that mm -hmm. is accurate, it starts with a family mm -hmm. that, okay, it's a part of a meal. You have a glass of wine and you move on. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't necessarily see that. We're thrust with commercials in our face and we're thrust with pharmaceutical commercials in our face and, you know, make no mistake. That's their job to sell right. those products. Right. Um, but we want to have, you know, the idea of better life through chemistry is in is in our face. Boy, isn't that so true? 24 seven. Isn't that so true? And, um, but we do have to, to, uh, not just look at the supply side. Um, and I, and I think that we can, we can attack the supply side 
in a way that doesn't mimic the war on drugs. Oh, yeah. Um, but we have to look at the supply side. And several years ago, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, the Drug Czar's office, my friend David Mineta was the deputy director for the for demand reduction. Mm. And you looked at was where trauma plays a role or where family systems play a role. And you look at all the underlining things and realize that there's not one. There's so many things that can lead someone down that path yeah. um, that we really have to look at the individual in their situation. And that's where you talk to people that probably aren't too up on this, that they basically get their information from TV and the internet, but they'll say, well, all we got to do is shut the borders down Mexico. It's all we got to do. You know, then fentanyl goes away. And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't know if that statement's true. It probably would reduce, but we don't, we're only getting 10% of the drugs anyway. So 90% of it's coming in the United States. That's not, you know, confiscated, but, um, I had, uh, I think his name was Michael Brown on, he was a DEA agent. Uh, he works for a company. Can't remember the name of the company, but they have a testing system where they can test, uh, uh, drugs. Uh, it's expensive, but their company is a private company that is kind of marketing this idea. But he told me, he goes, um, uh, point I forgot what I was going to say, but he was, he was talking about, Oh, here's what he said. He goes, Jeff, these drug cartels, they are so far ahead of what we think. And this was like, this was like two months ago. He was on my show and he's like, you know, they already know fentanyl is being, being focused on and fentanyl is made from precursor chemicals they're getting from China. So all they got to do is just tweak the precursor temp chemicals and just make something new. Well, then lo and behold, two months later, I see this ISO this is like 50 times more powerful than fentanyl now is being like caught or confiscated. And he was exactly right. It's like, you know, and this is why some of these people are spending their whole careers chasing fentanyl. And I'm like, I, it's admirable. It's great. But, but we got to learn to pivot because the drug cartels are way ahead of us. I mean, I'm not going to say fentanyl is not going to be a big problem in five years, but something will be bigger. I think. You know, I, I was just in North Carolina presenting at, at a conference, and one of the things that we were talking about was we've got to lose that tunnel vision that it's all about fentanyl or it's right. all about opioids. Right. Because what we've seen over the last century is we'll, uh, depressants and stimulants will, like every 30 years or so, will rotate. And we've got to start looking at the causes. Mm -hmm. And like you said, we got to look at the demand side and address those causes because it may be a different substance in five years, but if we don't look at the underlying stuff, we're going to have it a won't matter with that. So, what are the causes? Yeah, what do you what do you think? You know, I, it's I certainly things like trauma, um, abuse, mm -hmm. um, you know, mental illness, people who feel isolated. Mm -hmm. It's a social lubricant. I mean, there was a study that some people uh, it, it called the uh, Chicago Social Drinking Project, where they studied longitudinally individuals who develop. Uh, substance use disorders and many of them didn't have trauma didn't mm -hmm. have these other normal precursors they just like drinking until mm -hmm. it got to be too much so we there's not just one way it's it, it's like you said i wish it's an unanswerable question what isn't there that can lead to it yeah my i guess where i'm really hypersensitive is the we focus so much on one thing. It's like, I always use the whack-a-mole example, you know, you hit the mole and then four more pop up and you're just, you're just trying to put out fires with, you know, a big forest fire with a bunch of thimbles. And I think we just keep peeling back the layers. We always go back to 
the causes, the demand, you know, and, and it's easy to say, well, if people just didn't do drugs and the drug cartels will go out of business. Well, the problem is, again, if you want to work on mental health, it's not just drugs. It could be gambling, sex addiction, uh, addiction, food addiction. Um, I think I saw something like 82% of medical uh, stays or costs are based on pretty much what people eat, you know? So, you know, a lot of what we have for problems health-wise is our own choices we make daily or our own choices we make daily and what we decide to eat. Um, so going back to say like during COVID, which is just, you know, everything got amplified. Uh, I think alcohol usage went up 65% or something during COVID. So not only was COVID difficult, but now we were drunk during COVID. Um, but geez, I just like, so how does this get better? How, how do we how do we change the narrative? I mean, I, I have my thoughts on that, but I was going to ask you, what, how, how do we make a difference? How, how do we get the numbers to start going in the right direction? You know, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know. It's kind of hopeless in a way. Um, it's like, I, I get frustrated with trying to think about, mm-hmm. about all the awareness. And I, I go on this every podcast. I just, awareness is almost like to me, a waste of time. I mean, it, it really is. If you think about, and I use this, almost on every show. So people watching me say, here goes Jeff again. But if you look at dieting, for example, I mean, everything we put in our mouth, your, your water bottle right there has a label. Okay. Yet we're the heaviest industrial country in the world and we're getting bigger every year, but we're smarter. So I, we can be aware about drugs and alcohol till the cows come home. I don't think it's gonna make a difference. Maybe I'm a little more negative, but I just don't think it's going to make a difference. I think until people can find actionable ways to deal with whatever they're dealing with, whether it's childhood trauma or in my life, it was later trauma in my life. Um, until we can find ways to navigate through, it's like a game of Frogger. You know, you just go from one log to another to get out of the way. That's what life is. And I just, I, I, I want to stay, remain optimistic, Jeffrey, but I'm like, man, I just, I, awareness to me just is not something I really want to spend the rest of my life doing is making people more aware about these things. I just don't think that's going to work. Yeah. I think that that's only the first step. Um, and there certainly is awareness, um, on most things. I, and I, I agree with you. If I wear a blue and yellow ribbon, it doesn't do anything Mm -hmm. for Ukraine. Um, but it makes me feel like I'm doing something. Um, but I think we get back to the basics of building families and building communities and, and having prevention and having difficult conversations about things. Um, and, and we certainly want to be able to treat those who need it. But ultimately, our goal is to reduce the number of people who need treatment. And I, I think prevention is that way. We look at prevention. Um, and we recognize that there's a role for the, for the treatment professionals, but there's also a bigger picture of recovery where you have peers and recovery mm-hmm. coaches who are helping people manage the obstacles that get in the way of a healthy life while in recovery. And I think that the more we see that, we'll start to see a change. Um, you know, healthy living and, and community. Mm-hmm. If we can build community. Uh, and have difficult conversations in the community and and look out for one another. And, and we're so hyper-competitive with each other. My lawn's better than yours right. or this and that. Instead of, uh, of being a neighbor and the political yeah. climate of the last eight years uh, has certainly not helped either. How soon do parents need to start having conversations with their kids? I mean, what what's a... What's an appropriate age to start talking about, uh, you know, addiction and substance abuse and drugs and alcohol? And then how, how do you do it metaphorically, like through a story or something to help kids? 
You know, I again, I don't know the answer to that. I know that certainly if they're expressing an interest in mm-hmm. that, we have to have that conversation. It's it's like how we deal these days or, or, or you know, I have a 27 year old son and we dealt with uh, sex the minute he expressed a question about that. And we talked about uh, where children come mm-hmm. from, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that we can't push those things aside and it can't be just pointing to somebody on the street. Like, uh, like my stepfather did uh, a, a wino sleeping on the streets of Boston, just talking about what a bad person he is because that bad person is somebody's brother, yeah. somebody's son, somebody, um, and, and just really having, um, a sense of compassion for, for other people. You know, you look at, um, the amount of like prescription stimulants from like 1990 to 2011, I think a 20 year period of time, it went from 600,000 children on stimulants to 3.5 million over 20 years. And then you look at the movie like dope sick and they talk about, they talk about the prescription opioids actually got cut in half, but deaths went up a hundred percent. So there isn't always a direct correlation with these things. Sometimes there's an inverse relationship where you would just think common sense. Oh, doctors cut their prescriptions in half. Well, we're going to save a lot of people. Well, deaths went up a hundred percent. So I, I know it's not directly, you know, but, but there, there's something in the numbers there that I'm just perplexed on. So, so we prescribe more stimulants to kids and that makes the situation worse. We cut opioid prescriptions in half and pe- more people die. So what the, what the hell, do, what the heck do we do? You know, in other parts of the country than, than where I'm at, and you would be much more familiar in, in, in the Midwest, this is in so many deaths of individuals, we're seeing methamphetamine being a part oh, of yeah, that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't see that as much here in the Northeast because it's not even, fact, heroin has kind of been our drug for 70 years or so. I'm on the board of ASAC here, the Area Substance Abuse Council. Yeah. Methamphetamine is the number one reason why people come into care care there. Yeah, and when you look at the numbers, you'll see methamphetamine is combined with other substances are are being involved. And I think that might be part of, of the riddle there. We can't just focus and have tunnel vision on opioids or on methamphetamine because people aren't just saying, well, I'm going to just do this one substance. We're, we're subjected to so many different things um, and the availability for so many uh, different things that it's rarely that somebody's using only one substance, even if it's unintentional. I, I run into some issues. Maybe you can help me with this because I talk so frequently about my our son Seth being prescribed Adderall at 16, and that was really the beginning of his his exploration and all this stuff. So immediately, what happens is my friends' kids get prescribed Adderall, and my phone rings. You know, like at midnight, Jeff, I have to ask you. You know, I, I just got back from the doctor's afternoon and. The doctor's prescribing our 13 year old to take Adderall. What do you think? And I'm like, gosh, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I'm not a doctor. So I certainly don't want to tell them not to take it, but man, I, my, I'm very hesitant in endorsing Adderall. I'll just tell you that. Um, my dad's a doctor. So I asked him and he said, well, you know, um, for some people that those type of stimulants work great. Um, and, and, um, for others like my son, it just kind of cracked the door open to abuse. Mm-hmm. And then when he did too much Adderall, uh, something negative happened. And then when he got off it, he crashed or, and it just like, it was this vicious cycle, but I don't know, maybe he was, maybe he had that predisposition that it wouldn't have mattered if it was Adderall, you know, maybe, maybe it was something else would open that door. I don't know. Um, yeah. I think being predisposed certainly doesn't mean you're predetermined. 
And and I think even uh, opining on that for me would be disrespectful to to you yeah, and your son. Yep. Um, and I, I, but there's always the opportunity that somebody can question their doctor or seek a second. That's what opinion. I recommended. But yep. But don't make a medical decision without your doctor right. or without a doctor because there's so many factors that come can come into play in everybody's body. Uh, metabolizes medication yeah. differently. Uh, uh, just over five years ago, I went into the emergency room with acute pancreatitis. Um, not a pleasant experience. No, and I, I was in such great pain and I was uh, starting to be out of it a little bit. And uh, they gave me the emergency room cocktail to calm people down, which is Haldol and Ativan. Oh, I didn't calm down. I got worse and more agitated. So what I had seen working in an emergency room work to bring people down actually made me worse. Yeah. And it's just because my body metabolized it differently. So we have to get a look at it because diet may play oh, yeah. a factor. Um, um, what what frightens me is people will go to one of those services where they'll do the their get their heritage and it'll tell them what they're predisposed for medically and they use that as a diagnosis or a way to live their life instead of it's just information that has been verified by your physician i had a guest on yeah last week that said diagnosis is for insurance companies mm -hmm. and i've never heard that phrase before and i thought to myself well it, I, I can see that you say attention deficit disorder. Okay. Boom. You know, here's a pill. It's like without that attention deficit disorder label, then you're not going to give that pill. So you reverse engineer it. And it's like every prescription comes from some type of diagnosis. And so the question is, is the diagnosis effective? Is it accurate? Is it, is it the only way, like you said, are there plant, are there, are there just natural plant-based remedies? Are there, things like meditation or exercise or, you know, even, even, I don't know. I just like, I, I'm trying, I know personally, I don't take anything. Um, you know, I take some supplements, that's it. But I've just been very paranoid now after my experience with my son about taking anything. And even if the doctor said, well, I think your youngest son needs to take Adderall uh, because he has attention deficit, you know, I, I, I would, at this point I would step in and say, well, first of all, attention deficit to me is not a disorder. Um, and I'll just get a second opinion. And I think there are multiple pathways towards recovery or multiple pathways to healing, regardless of what the malady may be. And certainly we're seeing a lot of research and things on, on naturopathic medication. Mm -hmm. I have a colleague here in Connecticut. Her name is Dr. Jaquel Patterson. Uh, she's a naturopath who's spoken around the country and she's posting on Instagram every day. These are the things that help with this hmm. certain Plants are high in this, which helps with restlessness. What's her name again? Helps with sleep. Dr. Jaquel Patterson. Okay. I will be glad to introduce you I'd to her. I'd love to meet her because I, I, I'm just like, wow, I'd really like to see what she's posting for sure. Right. And she, uh, she'll put, you know, if this food is rich in this and this is known to help with sleep hmm. uh, and talks about medication and self-care in so many ways. And I think that whether you go completely holistically or you use some combination is up to the individual whether you're using some medication or you're changing your diet or doing things um you know so many people get better from health physical health maladies by changing their diet and losing weight you see people blood pressure go down yeah thyroid i lost 40 this. pounds when i quit drinking so i think that that exploring every opportunity and seeking health 
we tell people to stop doing something, but we uh, we don't focus on where they could be. Hey, mm. look at how healthy you could be. Look what you're going towards. Yeah. I um I'm working on putting my speech together for the tour, and one of the things I like to talk about is there's two ways to change human behavior. Like you just said, we can focus on fear. You're going to go to prison. You're going to lose your job. You're going to be an addict. You're going to be an alcoholic, or we can focus on inspiration. Like you said, these are the good things. You can live to be a hundred. You could, you know, you, 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 you can, you know, be able to walk up the stairs when you're 75 years old, you know, uh, run an elliptical for half an hour, you know? So I think for me, uh, I really want to focus on, on the positive things. That's why a thing I like, I like to do with high schools with kids, we first talked about the word addiction. And what I like to do, Jeffrey, is I write on the board addiction. And then I say, okay, all, and the last time I did this was with freshmen in high school. I said, I want you to tell me what comes to mind when I say addiction. And they're just shooting off everything. And I'm writing all this stuff down. And I said, what do you, I, I said, what do you see that's common about all these words that you put up there to define addiction? And they all kind of like didn't really have an answer. And I said, they're all negative. I said, could telling the truth be an addiction? Could exercise, could eating healthy, could reading, could writing, could, I mean, are, 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 is it possible that there's good addictions? Um, because in a way we're all an addict. I mean, all of us are, but the kids just assume the word addiction was negative. And so I'm just trying to get them to kind of reframe and rewire how they're just looking at words like, like sober. I mean, I don't use the word sober personally because that implies a battle and implies I'm in a fight with something, you know, good versus evil. I just say I don't drink. I mean, it's just, to me, it's, it's, I'm a fairly pragmatic person. It's like, I don't know why we have to complicate it. So many of these things by playing these narratives that we're supposed to play. Like you have to use the word sober if you don't drink. No, you don't. You know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Now I'm not an alcoholic right now. And the story I use in my book is that if I was hundred pounds overweight and I was going to a, a, an overweight anonymous meeting and I'm sitting there and I get up and go, hi, I'm Jeff, I'm fat. And they go, Hey Jeff, how you doing? You know? And so I sit down and then four months later I come back and I've lost all the weight. Well, I don't stand up and say, hi, I'm Jeff. I'm fat. You know, when I lost the weight, now I lost the weight. I'm not fat anymore. Well, I kind of look at my alcoholism the same way. I'm not an alcoholic and I don't call myself sober. And again, is, am I the only person that thinks this way? You know? No, I think that a lot of people do, and I and there are many in the field who are starting to understand that people use the language that works best for Amen. them. If somebody says, "I'm an alcoholic and I've been in recovery for X number of years," fine. Yep, I agree. And if somebody says, "I'm recovered," we don't hear when it comes to something like smoking. Somebody doesn't say, "You know, uh, you know, I." I I'm a nicotine addict, but I haven't smoked in 20 years. They just say I'm a non-smoker or I'm an ex-smoker. Right. And let people choose their own language mm -hmm. rather than f trying to fit them into a script. Because when you when you have a script, you're playing a role. Mm -hmm. When you use your own language that you're comfortable with, um, you're really living your, it's your life. It's about your life. And, and we have the right to identify ourselves in any way that we wish. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, that's, that's where my five-year naive relationship with this gets me in trouble sometimes because I'm fairly, I'm fairly opinionated to what works for me. And I have to understand that, you know, not everybody thinks that way or can't think that way. And I was having a conversation with a gentleman. I was going to ask you about this. And I'm so afraid to even say this because it's cancel culture we live in today, but it's my show and 
you, you, you say and, what you, and you are breaking the status quo. So here we go. <laughs> but I had someone, you know, we were talking about stigmas and they're like, you know, you know, uh, addict and substance abuse and addiction and all that. And he goes, he goes, well, how about think about this for a minute? He said, you know, all the billions and millions of dollars that goes into cancer, uh, research, let's say, or for cancer, there are some cancers that are self-induced. You know, if I don't, if I don't wear sunscreen and I'm out in the sun for a long time, I, I, and I get skin cancer, all of a sudden I tell everybody I have cancer and money starts plowing into the, my nonprofit because I have cancer. Well, if I wore sunscreen, I wouldn't have got the cancer or let's say diabetes, for example. I mean, a lot of diabetes is because of what people eat. Um, cause you can be heading to diabetes and they can tell you to cut your diet down. All of a sudden you don't get it. So there are ways you can, you can mitigate how that happens to you. But, but when someone gets cancer, it's like all of a sudden everybody is like, well, you know, I'm sorry you have it and, and we want to help you. And, but somebody's addicted to heroin or something. It, it's just, it, it, all of a sudden they're a scourge and, and, and they deserve to have these problems. And it's like, I, I, I struggle with that and I'm, I'm probably not presenting it or articulating it correctly, but do you know where I'm going with that? It's, I think you're abundantly clear and, and I, I agree 100%. Um, first, let me say around the choice of words, like an addict and things like that. It's a professional. It's not my job to use those when working with mm -hmm. somebody. They're dependent on a substance. That's much more appropriate to say. People can say, call themselves junkies or whatever they want. But as a professional, I have to watch the language that I use when interacting. So what's the correct someone. way for me to say but that? Because I want to try I want to try to Somebody with a substance, I, for somebody with an opioid use okay. disorder. Okay. Is, 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 it's less threatening, and I can call myself whatever I right. want if that's me, but I think as a professional, we have to change the narrative for the field. Yep. But what you're talking about are what happens with chronic disorders. Every single chronic disorder known to human has some sort of behavioral component. Mm. If I have asthma and I am active and doing something and not managing it, there's a lot of pollen in the air, or it's humid and I'm overdoing it, I'm going to struggle to breathe. If I have diabetes and I don't watch my diet, mm -hmm. I'm going to have problems with that. Um, cancers are one. We see that. So there's a behavioral component for almost every chronic disorder. We see commercials for individuals with COPD that say, if you have COPD, and you smoke, dot, dot, dot. So they're saying, if you do this behavior that's terrible right. for COPD, we got a med for you. But there's a behavioral component. It just is so incredibly stigmatized. And a lot of the negative behaviors uh, with substance use disorders really are, are the things that tear families apart. But the, to say that they're unique is not, hmm. is not fair. Yeah, I just, you know, because I, I don't know, I just... I'm really trying to learn uh, the different lenses that people view these things from. And I really think that in, in what I'm trying to do and help people, I, I sometimes stumble and say the wrong thing, you know, and initially I came into this so overly aggressive Jeffrey with disease versus choice. And I finally started to realize that, you know, it's nature and nurture it's disease and choice. And, and we're trying to say it's one or the other. And I think that's a, that's a setup question that, that is just unfair. And, and I think in most situations, even if it is a disease, there are choices along the way. I had a friend of mine tell me one time, you know, if you take an alcoholic that is convinced it's a, it's a disease and they're at the grocery store. Okay. 
by the time they get home and have that beer they took out of the fridge, they made a thousand choices along the way that they could have any, they didn't have to buy the beer. They didn't have to put it in the car. They didn't have to put it in the fridge. They, they didn't have to crack the bottle. You know, so it's like, so it's a combination of both. I mean, if it's a disease, no one still held a gun to your head, you know, and made you drink that. And, and that's where I struggle with trying to be sensitive, but I've lost two people, man. So for me to sit around worrying about hurting other people's feelings, you know, kind of like with you, you know, I'm trying to challenge the status quo and to change the narrative. Like I said, if we were doing, if what we were doing was working, I wouldn't be doing the tour. And if we just, there's what, 35 million people or something, uh, or it's like 15,000 rehab facilities. Um, and it's a $50 billion industry, whatever the numbers are, let's just build another rehab facility. Right? No, I, I just don't, to me, that doesn't interest me. I, I just, I'm not, you know, let's, Go ahead. Let's build on something that's not working. Exactly. We've not had good outcomes right. in this field. Um, over 45 years, we haven't had a change in outcomes. And one of my colleagues says, look at what was done to the telephone in 45 yeah. years. When we were kids, we were sneaking around the corner with the phone so right. mom couldn't hear who we were talking kids, my to. Sons and then picture nowadays, that. They can't even picture that. <laughs> you know, you hope to have a long cord. Trying to talk to some girl total- or something, and my mom and dad are sitting yeah. in the living room, you know. Uh, the world changed with total phone and you're like, what? Total phone. Right. And so I, I think the field needs to look at itself and say, yeah, we're not doing what we need to. We need to change. But there's such an investment in the status quo in that because change is scary. And, you know, anything that I've learned in this field is because somebody else taught me or I screwed something up and someone said, hey, don't do that. Um, I remember working in, in, juvenile treatment my first job out of college i did something my boss pulled me aside and he says to me hey you f that up don't do it again and then that was the end of it yeah and we're still friends to this day but it was hey you made a mistake correct it and we're not going to harp on it and and beat on you about this mistake forever that's easier said than done because the concept of the sunk cost fallacy is you know you've got so much like aa for example i've I have a lot of people that just believe in, 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 in their own space that it's an accurate statement that it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, it's, it's saved their life. But like other people saying, hey, it's outdated. It's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like going to church or something. I just, I don't really, my wife didn't like AA because of the, the God angle to it. And, mm-hmm. and again, I think a lot of people that that's their turnoff, but I've been to AA meetings and they've kind of switched gears. They've updated it to a higher power, you know, whatever your personal higher power is. But again, I've talked to some people they are like, yeah, AA is just kind of outdated. They, they haven't done a really good job updating. So, um, but that concept of the sunk cost fallacy is so true. You, you put in time to something, it's hard to let go. It's hard to change. Even in the face of evidence, that says, this is the way we have to do it. But I've done it for so many years like this. I've got a vested interest to not change. And I think that's, that's where we stand right now with, even the war on drugs, it's so outdated. I think, oh, yeah. I think with AA, it's, it's well, AA was never designed as treatment. It, Good point. Uh, it, it was bastardized and brought into treatment. So if I'm somebody in the community who wants to find recovery through a 12-step fellowship, I think that's fantastic that they're out there. And they, they do great things. Um, but we have to not reject people because they reject our choices mm-hmm. oh you should go to aa well i don't like it well because you haven't tried it enough instead of saying hey well what do you want to try yeah um, 
you know, um, people that want to get back involved in their faith community may go and not like this church and say, ah, the personality is really right. not for me, but it doesn't mean they're rejecting. They're going to go look somewhere else. Um, and I think we just get caught up in saying, well, it works for me, so it must work for everybody. Um, and I, I guess we call that something called the the uh, fallacy of attribution. Mm-hmm. We think that our attributes right. apply to everybody. Right. And we're all um, guilty of that. We're all guilty and, of that. And, I think it's SAMHSA has said, I think 74% of treatment programs are 12 step based, but we haven't had a change in outcomes in 45 years. So that's, that's problematic. Just in America alone, we've got 21 million individuals who identify as being in recovery. That's a pretty significant mm-hmm. amount of people. 21 million people identify as being in recovery or recovering. Mm-hmm. Worldwide, there's a membership in the 12 step fellowships, AA and NA of 5 million people. Wow. That's worldwide. So why are we pushing something that most people, pushing something in treatment that most people find recovery another way Mm. instead of letting people choose the way that they want to go? And I don't have anything against the fellowships. I think they are fantastic in the community. But when you're paying for treatment, you're paying for professional help. Mm -hmm. And that's not what the fellowships were designed for. And they never asked for treatment to be boot camps uh, for the fellowships. Yeah, man, it's there's to me, it's the wild, wild west right now for the mental health. It, it is. is just and that's where one of my motivations. And again, I'm so new to this. You have so much more experience and wisdom than I do, but is trying to connect people. I think I think, you know, Johan Hari again said the opposite of addiction is connection. But I think the opposite of this wild, wild west in the mental health space is connection. I think you and I and the tour and all the people we're going to be connecting with, if we can somehow take all these silo shops around the country, get us all connected. Maybe there's somebody in Idaho doing something, you know, just earth shattering, really changing. I, I ran into somebody, Jeffrey, that blew my mind how optimistic they were on this one thing that's going to change the mental health space. And I'm like, wow, what is that? I'm okay. Million of things going through my mind. You know what it is? Mm-hmm. It's virtual reality, mental health. Put it on here. You click something and you're vir- and, and she said, I put this thing on for 30 minutes and you wouldn't believe, you know, all it's pretty much meditation, but it's visual. But, but again, it's like, okay, so there's a groundbreaking thing out there. I've never heard of that. And I don't know from a person who cert- does certifications and, something like that probably isn't even certifiable. I mean, that's probably like woo woo magic right now on the, on the, on the outliers of mental health research. Yeah. I'm not really sure much about it. So, um, I, I speaking on it would, right. would be really be an educate, uneducated words on my part. I, you know, I, if, if it works for, for people, you, it works for people. Yeah. That's fine. I, you know, I'm all for mm-hmm. it. The same with psychedelics. I, you know, I'm on the fence, but if it's working for people, I certainly wouldn't want them to stop. And one of the issues that we face when we look at substance use disorders and mental health is that we are siloed. And in the, the field that I work in, in substance use disorders, there's almost a badge of honor to say, oh, hey, I'm in recovery. Absolutely. But if I step forward and say, you know, my recovery is mental health and here's what I struggle with. Stigma associates that and stigma, discrimination follows stigma, that it's not as much a badge of honor to say that. Um, and I don't. Well, but hold on a second. When I first that, met you, you made it very clear some of the issues you were having. 
And I looked at that. I got instant respect from you instantly. There was no, I talked about my suicidal ideation over Christmas publicly. This is like Mr. Undeterred. You know, I thought about this five months ago. I think, I think we are getting better. I mean, the fact you just opened up on my podcast with, with your depression, things like that. I moved you up in my respect level. Uh, I really did because I know you're honest with me now because everybody has these things, you know, at some yeah, it, level. It's part of me. It's it's part of me. It's part of you as well. But it doesn't define before, you, you know? negatively. But it doesn't define right. me. No, it's just something that I have to overcome. And, and, and then the way I deal with my issues doesn't have to be the same as somebody else's dealing with theirs. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't recommend something that works for me. It's not illegal. It's not drugs. But I am motivated. I listen to music that talks a lot about self-loathing. Hmm. And all of a sudden, people get depressed by that. And I say, wait a minute. That's my tribe right there. There's somebody like me. I'm okay. I belong to a community. I like and that. Like, uh, I don't get it. But I wouldn't say to somebody struggling with depression or suicidal ideation themselves, hey, why don't you do this? Because yeah. it, I think it would be, it's malpractice and dangerous. It's just my thing. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, we could go off on the suicidal ideation thing because, man, I mean, my, my two people I lost in my life were drugs and alcohol, obviously mental health challenges. But mm-hmm. the suicidal ideation thing is there's, I think, four college athletes just this year, division one that, that have taken their own lives. And they were all female though, all four of them that I know publicly that have been in the news. So years past, I don't remember one, you know, and that, a couple of years alarming. ago, a quarterback from Washington state took his own life. And that was really a horrible thing. And it, it brought a lot of attention to that. But when we see individuals like Simone Biles yeah. saying, I'm just not, yep. uh, I got these issues. Uh, to me, that's, but she a, got stigmatized so quickly on sports oh. talk radio. Where's, where's her courage? She's letting down America. And then after the, everything settled, I think everyone's like, wow, we really effed up. We missed a great opportunity and everyone circled the troops and everyone supported her. But initially it was embarrassing to watch people throw under the bus. Absolutely. You and I are in this space now, but it was, I was just like, are you kidding me? We're going back to the stone ages here. This is ridiculous. She's come out, she's looking for help and we're throwing under a bus because some stupid Olympics. Yeah, that has nothing to do with us. It doesn't affect our lives whatsoever. Man. I'm criticized, and we're seeing it now with a basketball player in Phil uh, in New Jersey. Uh, uh, ben uh, oh, Sam- Ben Simmons yeah. was traded from yeah was traded from the Sixers yep. to to the Nets, and he wasn't mentally ready right. to play. And they're calling him soft yeah. and saying it's- all these things. And and I don't get it. Look, I grew up in the era of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, who would stab you <laughs> to win a beer? game that doesn't oh, Bill count. And beer. Right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you know, they st- to win a game that doesn't count. Right. <laughs> it's just a different era, and nobody knows what demons, you know, Ben Simmons is dealing right. with. Let the guy be, and you've got sports talk people, many of them have never done anything. Right. Um, uh, the, but uh, but I see others too. You know, uh, a colleague, Murphy Jensen, who won the French Open with his brother in doubles in '93, talks about his substance disorder. Talks about feeling mm-hmm. not good enough and things. And to me, that's that's brave. Yeah, absolutely. Tony Mandarich, who was number yep. two pick him. overall, will talk about his substance use mm-hmm. disorder and the other things going on. And to me, there's it's it's setting the tone, saying these things are out there. Even I who sits on this pedestal for many people can get that now neither one of those two individuals murphy or or tony are especially egocentric they're really nice guys from talking to them um uh and and well you know even keeled about things 
but people look at them and say, hey, they're sports stars, but they're people. And I, we can't lose the humanity in that. And we have to look, stop looking at, at our selfish needs. Yeah. It, I mean, boy, that's so accurate. I'm just thinking to myself, you know, just in our own family with my son, Ian, who's a golfer at the University of South Dakota. And um, so he's a division one athlete. And, you know, his brother died when he was 15 on the day of districts. So golf is golf is like half the book I wrote is how golf saved my life. And uh, writer captain, uh, writer captain Zach Johnson did a nine minute documentary on my son, Ian, because Zach's from our hometown and Ian got to play with him about losing a son and raising $40,000 in high school and, and how we've kind of embraced that opportunity. So, but I still think about my son uh, over Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving, my mom died. So, you know, Ian lost his, his own mom in June and then he lost his grandmother in November. Okay. And, Mm -hmm. and the university of South Dakota had systems in place to help them. And I think that's phenomenal because I know friends at other colleges. I know one friend of mine that actually quit college golf. And he said the coach and the program there had no systems in place for mental health with these, with these kids. And now South Dakota stepped Mm -hmm. up. I think they have like mental health days where you can take a day off for mental health. That is awesome. And that's what we need to see instead of pushing these kids to the brink and having them take their own lives over a sport of all things. It's like a kid. It's like my son, my youngest son came out as gay and it's like homosexual kids are five times more likely to take their own lives over something like sex. It's like, it's so ridiculous that our society can't just love people for who they are and not put them up on these sports pedestals or criticize them because they're gay. I just, I just like, we have to be better. You know, we have to do better as a society, Jeffrey. Yeah. You know, what difference does it make to anybody if, if, an individual is gay or transgender Apparently it does. Or, has yeah. a dis- or have a disability. Right. It doesn't affect my life in any way. And why do we care as, if, if that individual has love around them and their family and friends, who cares what, and look, you, I, I'm not saying people should agree or, right. or disagree or whatever. It's just let people be, let them live their lives the way they see fit. If it's not, you know, it's not treading on somebody's rights. Well, if they want your opinion, to be gay if they, if, or to be transgender, if or, they want your opinion, they'll ask, "Hey, you know, I want your opinion. What do you think about me being gay?" You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. I just, um, I think part of this whole tour, I'm really excited. We have one stop that's uh, geared towards the LBGTQ community, and I'm, I'm so excited to go up there because mental health in that in that arena is five mm-hmm. times more. Um, uh, worse off than it is in the, in, in, yeah. in, in non uh, communities like that. And, and substance use as well. And those, yeah. those, it's an underserved. It is. That's the word community. I'm looking for. Underserved. It's, yep. it's absolutely yeah. underserved um, because it's, it's hard to ask for help and be who you are because there's judgment in just who you mm-hmm. are, let alone whatever uh, disorder you may be dealing with. Yeah. Listen, I, this has been great. I, I looked up and it's been an hour, man. It feels like 10 minutes. Um, you're an easy guy to talk to, and I'm really looking forward to, to meeting you on the tour and um, really excited to see your part of the country and meet, meet people in your area that have been affected by this. And we can share stories and we can be vulnerable and we can start trying to find solutions uh, to get these numbers to go in, in the right direction. Uh, and, and to find, find ways to make people's quality of life, their well being better. And that's really, you know, 
I'm not like you. I'm not trying to eradicate addiction and substance abuse. I'm just trying to make people's lives better. Yeah, I have to look at what my locus of control is. Right. And I can only really control myself, but I have to, for my own well-being, um, there's some joy in seeing others happy and just living their lives. And I've learned that as I get older, as my son gets older, he's 27. When I see families with young children and those kids are laughing, there's nothing better than I that. Know. I and know. I think that we deserve that as light in our, throughout our lives. Yeah. And that's a good point. Cause when I now, you know, it's like I said, it's been six, this October will be six years since we lost Seth and I still cry. You know, I've cried at least four or five times today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only five thirty Iowa time. Um, I'll cry a couple more times tonight, but it's a different type of cry, man. It's, it's like a gratitude. It's like, I'm so fortunate to have him for the period I did in my life. And it's like, I, I miss the memories that we could be building together, but it's not the painful cry. You know, it's, it's just a different type of, uh, evolution mm-hmm. that I've gone through. And I'm trying to show people that, you know, you don't have to hang on to, grief in, in a certain emotion, emotive state. You, you, I still grieve, but it's a different type of grief. It's, it's, I don't know. I can't, I can't articulate it well, except it's evolution. It's just, I'm adapting. I'm, you know, I, my, 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 that pain, the intense pain isn't there. I miss them. There's a gaping hole in my heart. My wife too. I miss her immensely. You know, I'm 56 and it's just me in this house. You know, I got two dogs. My youngest is moving out. You know, I'm going to be widowed, empty nester at 56. And I, I wasn't planning on that, man, at 50. I wanted to have a wife to come home and share dinner and go on a romantic date and travel the world. And mm-hmm. it didn't turn out that way. But I have found ways, and this is what the tour is about, Jeffrey, is um, being become better, not bitter. It's that, it's that choice mm-hmm. I have. Um, I like Victor that, Frankel, yeah. I love him to death, man. That book was uh, Man's Search for Meetings, like the best book ever in my life. And he said, you know, suffering is my, is my opportunity. And I think, I think there's something in that, in that we can look at death, we can look at grief, we can look at trauma as opportunities and not as pain and punishment and and all that. So, you know, and the Buddha has said that enlightenment comes through suffering. It has to, it's a part of life. If it doesn't, then what's the alternative? Yeah. You know, I, I think that for me, the last thing I can say is, you know, people don't change because we hear the thunder rumbling. We change when we get struck by lightning. I like that. I, like um, that. Uh, I, I wish I could say I made that up, but I still, I think I oh, still I'll give you credit. <laughs> <laughs> it was sounds good for me. Yeah. But it, it's, that's, it. it's, we, we, we have to live our lives and experience everything to become the people that we want to be. Well, listen, I, I, it's been an honor to, to actually have a nice conversation with you and it's going to get deeper and more intimate on the tour. And, um, I'm just so happy you guys decided to partner with us because we want to turn a, a massive national spotlight on that part of the country and the people in Connecticut and Bridgeport never been there. Uh, the history there is going to be amazing. Oh, it's not. <laughs> uh, the history is interesting. It's an interesting town. I like interesting is an interesting choice of words. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing you in July, and and uh, we'll talk before then. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, and I want to. I will look forward to being on your podcast as well. So, okay. all right, great, All right, man. Thanks for being on the show, and we'll talk soon. Good.